0: Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy, are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to explore the perspective of an educator who researched and taught in rural schools. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Casey Jacobowski of Waterbleet, New York. all, I wanted to share that Lesson Impossible charted for the first time in Uruguay this past week, which wouldn't have happened without all the listeners who subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, or forward it to an interested friend or colleague on another continent. This little non-profit podcast couldn't have reached as many people as it has without your support in sharing, retweeting, and sending links, and I thank you so much for that. As someone who grew up in a suburb 20 minutes from Vancouver, the third largest city in Canada, and now lives in a suburb 20 minutes from Seattle, which comes in at a respectable 18th place for largest U.S. cities, my ideas about how 1 in 5 Americans and Canadians live and learn have been informed primarily by media and stereotypes. Thankfully, Casey Jacobowski was kind enough to talk to me in May about the reality of teaching in a rural district. His main point, that rural and urban education is more similar than different, came up again and again as we discussed standardized testing, the value of relevance for students to be engaged, and how parents just want the best for their children, regardless where they live. If, at the end of the episode, you want to follow Casey on social media, explore links to some of the scholars he mentions, or find out more about the podcast, you can click on the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I'm really excited for our conversation. I've always taught and experienced urban school districts, and I can't wait to talk to you about rural education.
1: Aviva, thank you so much. It is truly an honor, especially as we are now past the Memorial Day deadline. And uh, I want to just pause for a moment and remember one of my students who unfortunately was killed in action. He is uh, Isaac Nieves. He was a specialist in the U.S. Army, and he was killed in Iraq. And so Memorial Day is very poignant to me because in a community such as where I taught, you lose a member of the community, the entire community suffers. And so we honor his memory on this Memorial Day weekend and go forward trying to do our best.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I think that, again, is something that we as teachers don't often talk about, which is that sometimes we do lose our students and the tremendous toll that it takes on us as educators, as well as our communities.
1: And especially in rural areas, uh, Aviva, they are so intertightly woven.
0: And how would you characterize, and I I realize this is a very essentialistic question, but in your experience, how would you describe a rural school district in America today?
1: Aviva, that's a great question, because I think when you say like urban education, people have this idea that pops in their head of huge city brick buildings that are two and three stories. And during 90 degree days, the building is not air conditioned well. And, you know, maybe it's not quite exactly as safe as you'd want it to be walking out on the streets or overworked teachers or, you know, but when you look at rural communities, they're not a conglomerate, just like urban education isn't a conglomerate. It's not the same thing across. They're unique. And a lot of times what people don't understand is rural can be as small as five kids in one building with one teacher where you've got to drive for 45 minutes to see a grocery store or a town all the way up to and including a nice community where maybe there's a thousand or so people who live there, you know, and the school graduates a couple of hundred kids every year. And it's from multiple towns. Rural is so unique and different. Just like urban is so unique and different. Everybody is different. So that's what I'm trying to share with people. Is that rural is not necessarily one perception. It's multiple stories. And we have to tell so many different stories. Because each story is unique. But there are themes across it. And one of the big themes is... We are more alike than we are different, but we're unique. And we just want people to honor our uniqueness.
0: And what would be some keystones of that uniqueness that you would want to highlight for our listeners, many of whom might be hearing or even thinking about rural districts for the first time?
1: First keystone I want to say is that a rural community wants to be valued, just like an urban community. We're talking for many of our rural communities. They want people to feel like they are value added. The second major keystone is that they don't necessarily believe that the mascot is what makes them unique. What they want people to understand is how living in a rural environment is unique. And so a one-size-fit-all policy solution or one-size-fit-all teaching career, or one-size-fit-all activity may not necessarily do well in a rural area. The third touchstone I want people to walk away from is that rural folks are smart. They're intelligent. They may not know where to get a cappuccino frappe from, or they may not have a sushi a la whatever, but what they are is they're smart. And they'll question, why are you doing this without talking to us? And they want to be part of the process. So those are the three keystones I take away.
0: I think one of the major stereotypes of rural education is that the community is not necessarily invested in the idea of education, that it is the nuisance of you know, what kids have to do that the government's making them do. But I imagine that stereotype, like all stereotypes, is, is very <laughs> multifaceted and that there's a lot more going on there. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Oh, absolutely. There is a huge stereotype in all different education about all different types of people, because it's an easy story to tell if you just have one narrative. In reality, if you look at rural education, people are very invested. They're very conscientious that what's going on in their communities is critically important. But what they want to know is how will teaching common core math help my child be successful? Or they want to know why all of a sudden we have to argue about how a text is constructed, as opposed to what is the author trying to say. And so, you know, you look at it as realistically, just like anybody else, what is the value that my child is gaining from this? And why are we doing this? These are all critically important questions that everybody should have a right to talk about. And I feel that at the heart of the matter is that rural communities, and and Robert Worth now talked about it in his book, The Left Behind, and I have a a chapter about it in my book, Thinking About Teaching. Paul Theobald has it in his book, and Kat Biddle has it in her papers, and Amy Anzano has it in her papers. Everybody really just wants you to know that they're doing good things. And they're being successful and they are investing, but they want a return on their investment just like everybody else does.
0: Do many of these communities, are they able to employ people from within the community or is it a case of outsiders coming in and maybe perhaps not always staying or integrating into the community?
1: Oh, Aviva, you hit the nail on the head because I think there's this idea, there's this stereotype that it's going to take uh, until my great grandparents' bones are buried in the cemetery that I'm part of the community, AKA it'll take four or five generations. What I think rural areas really want to see is they want to see people who are not utilizing them as a stepping stone or as a ladder, but they want to see them as somebody who's willing to invest. After all, if you live in a rural area, You are part of a community. You know your neighbor. You run into them. Just like when I was teaching, I used to run into my students all the time when I would stop at at the local gas station that had a sub shop. Or if I go into the restaurant, it was my students' parents who were cooking my meals. Or if I went to the repair shop, it was my students' parent who was tearing my automobile apart. There wasn't the anonymity that suburbia or urban areas gave. And it harkens back to this concept of community. And within the communities, one point that I think is so critically important about understanding is that people aren't being nosy. What they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out how to support you. And they're trying to figure out if the values within the community are such that you believe that their children can be successful and that their children can do the best. And so if you look at coming out and becoming part of a rural community, what you need to understand is that you are not only investing your professional career, but you're also investing your personal career. And for some people, that's really just, whoa. So they want the suburban or the urban anonymity. But in a rural area, that's not what they want. What they want is an investment in the idea of their community and the support of everybody through sports and community band and community engagement. And yeah, you may eat a lot of pasta, pasta suppers, but dang it, you're helping out the rural area. You're helping that community out.
0: Absolutely. So maybe backing up just a little bit, what was your path to teaching and what is your position now?
1: So I grew up in the suburbs of Buffalo, New York. I am a long-suffering Buffalo Bill fan and Sabres fan, so hopefully nobody holds that against me. Uh, I, I became interested in teaching because I wanted to do a better job of telling the story of especially history. I became a social studies teacher because I wanted people to understand the story, the majestic history, how people had influence over their lives. And so I went out and I went to school at State University of New York, Fredonia. Go Blue Devils, little shout out. I became a teacher by working in rural Little Valley, New York, in Cattaraugus County. See, I had grown up in the suburbs. So when I saw this uh, rural community, it was totally different. Nothing I had ever seen before. And so I was asked to teach multiple different classes all through the middle and high school. And one of the points that I learned was that my students were amazing. They're phenomenal. They do amazing stuff. And they want to know relevance. And so after I left my first teaching job, I moved out to central New York near Binghamton. I got a master's degree from Binghamton. And uh, I really found myself getting into conflict all the time with my history professors because they wanted to argue about sources. They wanted to argue about arguments. And I wanted to know how to teach that better. I wanted to inspire my students to look to the past as inspiration for what they could do in the future.
0: And were you able to to find the answer to that for yourself?
1: I did, and one of it led to what I do now, which is I am a consultant, and I teach in engineering, and the points that I teach are leadership development, and what I learned is that our students need to be inspired by role models. They need people to say, hey, how are you doing? How is life treating you? What are you interested in? And I find that by building the relationships with students and by showing them examples that they become so engaged and so interested in what you're trying to talk with them about that the inspiration leads them to become passionate. And their passionate insight and look into solving the world's problems help them become engaged And if you can engage students, one of the areas that you do is you really critically make their lives different. You know, Aviva, I was talking with a former student of mine who was overseas, and Mara was telling me all about how what she saw was the students in the schools overseas and the students at home, they want somebody to look at them and go, your voice matters. I believe in you. I believe that what you have to say is interesting, and I believe that you're going to make a difference in the world. So if we focus in on that, that is the secret in the sauce.
0: It makes me think of the fact that I entered university thinking that I was going to double major in English and in drama. And I soon realized that I actually, especially in English, Didn't enjoy the subject matter that much, but I had such passionate and amazing English teachers that made me love it and love being in that class that I mistook the amazing atmosphere of being in an English class for actually loving the discipline of English. And it wasn't until I got into a university classroom where it was scraped bare to the bare textual analysis of what we were doing that I realized like, oh, I'm really not that into this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I hear you on that one. And it's like, you know, as I was doing my master's in history, one of the things I learned was that different authors argue different sources and different interpretations of those sources, because it's critical. It's important, especially in when we're not inclusive of everybody's stories, But in reality, what we have to imagine and we have to think about is that especially as educators, as teachers who are trying to educate our students, it's not about the test. It's not about the scores. It's not about the standards. What it's really about is asking them how they can see a problem in the world and make it better. It's really about critical thinking. It's about hearing what are people saying and why are they saying that?
0: And then I know that in researching this and and looking uh, into rural school districts a bit more, there is a disparity in some cases in terms of those standardized test scores. Oh, yeah. Where would you attribute that disparity and what would be your ideal solution?
1: So I think the disparity comes from the fact that we need to educate people about what testing looks like. We need to ensure that what we do is we also talk about what the critical needs are within those communities, and we need to talk about how standardized assessments are not the only way to get what children have actually learned. So that is where I would start.
0: So a rural student is just as qualified and just as educated as any other student. It's just the way that we're accessing that knowledge to prove it is really where the the hang-up is.
1: Absolutely. They're as smart, as qualified as any child. Every child is qualified and uniquely qualified. We got to change the system.
0: I like that. I like the spin on that because often we do talk about the so-called achievement gap and we talk about what we need to do to actually lessen the gap. But I like this idea of saying like, actually, there's no gap. It's just our perception that is completely off. And I think that could be applied to Every gap, whether it's racial or socioeconomic or whatever it is, I like that a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a structural problem. It's not a kid problem, it's a structural problem.
0: Do you have any example of lessons or units that you did that were unique to the area that you lived in that you feel could only have been successful in a, a rural district?
1: Founded your community and research and talk about their lives. And one of my students discovered that a veteran of the War of 1812's stone wasn't marked as a veteran, so he started to do the project to get the stone marked. I saw another member of my uh, student group who realized that an entire family had been wiped out by an influenza epidemic. And so what he did was he researched that family and found out that it was absolutely devastating. And so that's what I think by being in the area, using the resources you have, the parks, the businesses, the nature, the cemeteries, the archives, the libraries, the community, talking to people about those communities, those types of lessons of Eva and Listener's are so powerful because they ground people in what happens in their local community. And they get folks to realize why it's so critical in those local communities to be part of those communities.
0: One of the few common themes that I see across talking to many teachers is the incongruence of a set curriculum versus the individuality of their, their students. And I imagine that that is just a bigger factor in a, a large school as in a small school, because you still have so many individuals with individual histories and interests versus a, a prescription of what should and shouldn't be learned. Do you see pushback and successful pushback in that regard?
1: Yeah, because, you know, within, say, for instance, my state, New York, and many other states, they have a curriculum, or do they? And so that's where I think a lot of the the conversation comes to be, which is there is the national C3 framework for social studies, the common course learning standards that the national government has recommended in the past or national groups have recommended in the past, And then what happens is at the state level, you have state standards, you have state examples, you have state assessments. And then what happens is from those standards and assessments and exemplars, the local community is supposed to build their curriculum and they're supposed to use local resources. There's suggestions about what to cover, but it's the idea that if you're really teaching critical thinking and you're teaching students how to argue and how to engage that's got to all be local. You cannot, cannot use examples like how the subway in New York City works if you're in rural Delaware County, where the nearest subway is New York City. Just like a kid in an urban school district wouldn't know maybe a cow or a farm. So what you have to do is you have to use local examples and teach and then extrapolate out from that. You have to help the kids make sure that they understand, yes, there are such a thing as subway. Well, what's a subway? Well, essentially, it's an underground car where strangers get together because it'll transport you quickly. Well, why do you need to have quick transport? Well, because unlike in our area where a traffic jam is two turkeys, a deer, and the car waiting for them to cross the road, (laughs) you you have millions of people. So imagine how crowded your house is when you and your brother are fighting and you get sent to your rooms and you have to share that room. Well, imagine four people being in that space or six people being in that space. Just like in an urban area, you have to teach them, well, you know, uh, <laughs> if you want to have a really nice salad from a company today or you want to have a hamburger, that's got to come from someplace. Well, where does it come from? Well, it comes from our farms. And where are our farms? Well, they happen to be in upstate New York, or they happen to be in, you know, the upper peninsula of Michigan, or they happen to be uh, the cattle ranchers of Colorado, you know. So that's what we have to do is we have to expand our children's horizons. And that what I think is so critical, expanding horizons.
0: I'm a Canadian coming to America, and something that I saw even before I got here, but it has definitely become a lot uh, more magnified being here, is just the political divide that seems to very much be along geographical lines. And and that's the same in Canada as well. It tends to be more conservative in rural areas and more liberal in urban areas. When I, I think of an urban educator or going into a more rural area, I think of this perhaps philosophical clash that makes for a really good Hollywood movie, and I can think of actually a couple. Is that a real thing that happens?
1: Oh, yeah. What you need to think about is not necessarily a liberal or conservative. What you need to think about is what can we agree upon What conversations do we need to have? What are some basic universal human rights? So in a rural area, maybe you don't necessarily talk about some of the wild and crazy ideas that you may have. But what you talk about is that this wild and crazy idea that all people deserve food, all people deserve the right to live as they want to, all people deserve the right to own guns or to not own guns, all the rights that we have to talk about are so critically important of, it's the right to the opportunity to have an opinion and express it and disagree. That's, I think, the joy and the privilege. And what we get caught up on is really morality play and the idea of, well, are you actually working hard or are you hardly working? That's part of it. Or, you know, are you stealing from me? Or are you not, are you providing it, uh, providing the wealth? And so I think what we need to do is we have a not, need to have a dialogue about where we come into our symbiosis. Where do we come into our relationships? That's going to be so critical of VIVA that is really going to be critical. You know, there's there's something I recently came across when I was finishing my dissertation on rural schools and that was something called the backfire effect. The backfire effect is so unique and it comes out of this theory that if you believe in your heart of hearts in your mind that something is right and something is true and somebody makes a point that's in opposition of your belief you're going to fight. But instead, instead of saying you're wrong or you're stupid or you're incorrect or you're ignorant, what you actually need to do is you need to say, hey, so I understand that you believe the sky is green. Okay. Where did you get that information? Oh, you got it from greensky.com. Oh, unique. Did you know that on the internet, a dot-com site is usually a business? So there's a lot of light out there, and there's different shades of blue, and green is certainly pretty close to blue. And you walk through with them this entire process, and Aviva, at the end, what they begin to do is they begin to question their belief, and they begin to go, okay, so maybe the sky's different shades of color that are like blue and green but it's a process it's a relationship it's an evolution it's not a hard and fast and I think we forget that because time is so critical and we're always looking at the fact that we only have 180 days with our students but in reality they have 180 days for 80 to 90 years of their life
0: yeah so you've finished your dissertation which was on rural schools, what was your main question and what were some of your findings that you'd be willing to share?
1: Oh, thank you so much. I love talking about this. Uh, I found out when I was looking at rural school consolidations that there were three different narratives going on. There was the official narrative who would come from state government officials or the school district officials that they're running out of money, the programs aren't helping the kids for the future, and folks need to be more efficient in application of schools. The second narrative was from the media, newspapers specifically. They echoed the official narrative. And then there was a third group of people, folks who didn't normally go to meetings and who would post online on anonymous post boards and what they would say is, how can you say we're running out of money when, as a superintendent, you're making six figures? Or how can you say we need to get rid of programs for our students when people aren't volunteering, even though they say it's so important and necessary? And so there was this disconnect. There was this, this dissonance. There was this lack of conversation where people were talking at each other but not with each other. And so what I asked in my dissertation is this question of why are people talking past each other? And what I realized and what I began to discover in my two case studies is that people have stopped talking with each other and they're talking at each other. And so I feel that that's really the big takeaway from my dissertation. We've got to start talking with each other.
0: You talk about being a generalist How in that situation do you recommend preventing burnout? Because it just seems like, you know, we ask so much of teachers in general, and then to put the expectations of a community and multiple grades and all of that on top of them, that just sounds like a a recipe for pretty quick burnout.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, you You cannot address burnout as a personal flaw if it's really a systematic flaw. Teachers need to say no learn how to say no, young teachers, especially. You need to be able to balance home and work and you need to be able to say, I don't need to be perfect. I need to get it in and done. You know, a a doctor is never perfect 100% and yet they're still respected. A teacher, same thing. We need to shift the narrative. And so by saying no and saying, I tried, it's the best I can do. I'm going to learn from it. That's the unique part. That's where we need to be.
0: If I were to give you unlimited control, unlimited funds, unlimited time, how would you set up your ideal rural school district?
1: Oh, 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 oh. That is such a great question. If you were to give me all that, the first thing I would do was I would make sure that everybody had basic needs met from dorms to libraries to internet to teachers having the resources and the time and the opportunity to really focus in on creativity. What I would do is I would ensure that the community saw the school as not just an integral part, but as a unique part. And so that's what I would do with the money. I would make sure that people felt valued. I would make sure that people had their needs met that is what I would start with
0: awesome well thank you very much again thank you for sharing your experience and your perspective
1: my pleasure
0: this episode will not self-destruct in five seconds but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform more details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.